Most of what we know about the words of Jesus uh, are in the Gospels. The Gospels are where we hear, we know, uh, the parables are in the Gospels. We, the parables are familiar to some. If you even say the parables, uh, those, are, those are something that the world would be familiar with. Oh, we've heard of those. The, the Sermon on the Mount, something that is familiar. Some of the private teachings that Jesus has had with his disciples are in the Gospels. If you are, if your Bible, if you're one of those Bibles that has the, the words of Christ in red, you can see that some of the, the most of the red print is going to be in the first four books of the New Testament, right? So most of what we, the words, the, the, what Jesus has to say, we find in the, in the Gospels. And some of what he has had to say has become so familiar that, to the point that uh, many of his words get hijacked, hijacked in order to prove text somebody's hobby horse or soapbox. But let's. But let, I have. A, I have a proposal for you. What if? What if we had a follow up, so to speak, with Jesus? Like after all of the red letters in the Gospels, what if the church had a follow up with Jesus? A few decades after his resurrection and ascension, after Pentecost, after his followers made more followers. After his church became churches. What if we could hear from Jesus what he thought? No, really, what if we, what if we could hear what he thought, what mattered to him? What if we could say, all right, take a look, Lord, at what you paid for. What do you think? So many of you are so funny. Right now, I can't believe how many ouches I'm hearing in the room right now. <laughs> I don't know what that says about. I just said a few decades. I didn't ask it to like a contemporary report of the North American church. Let's just go with 60 to 65 years after Jesus' resurrection. Half a dozen decades. About that, at about that time, Jesus' dear friend, his beloved friend and follower, disciple, John. His loyal and aged disciple, John, had an encounter with the risen Christ. And he wrote about it. And, and in this encounter, which we call the book of Revelation, now, we're going to be in this for the next seven weeks, and so I want to make sure that you all see that there is not, nor will there ever be, anybody in this church ever put an S on the end of that word. That's just, we just want to be, it's not revelations, nobody say that, all right? So, otherwise, you're going to have Dr. Dab go, all right? Nobody wants that. But in this encounter, which is called the book of the Revelation, John had visions of history unfolding. He saw heaven and earth moving toward the end of the age. He saw the throne room of heaven. He saw the judgment seat of Christ. He saw the final judgment of mankind. The great white throne, the lake of fire. He saw the final salvation and reward of the church. 
He saw all of this and he wrote about it. He wrote to steal the church's resolve toward the persecution they were facing. He wrote to strengthen their resistance against compromise. He wrote to comfort and encourage the church. So when you read the book of Revelation, you need to think, this is supposed to comfort and encourage me. Some of them that you have read it, you find, wait, what? Yeah. Well, how's that, Dav? Well, he, because the, the thing is, a lot of folks make too many paperbacks out of the book. Too many charts and graphs. listens to a room full of futures, get nervous. Okay. Wait a minute. What's he saying? The book of Revelation is written to remind us that Jesus Christ is King and Lord forever. And that He is coming again. And that He is the victor. And that you who believe in His name share and will share in His victory. That is comforting and encouraging. Amen. In this book called The Revelation, there are seven messages from Christ himself to churches. And each of, in each of these messages to, to churches, seven churches he talks to, in each of them, there is this one consistent, powerful imperative. It's, the end of, it's at the end of each of the messages. He says, he who has an ear to hear, listen. Would you all say listen? Listen Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, what's interesting is the listen is an aorist active, but the is saying means it's a present tense verb. That That is the Spirit, whatever you, boy, sorry, I get a little excited and I'm trying to curb my enthusiasm. Whatever you hear as you read this text, you need to listen because what you, as you're reading, the Spirit is speaking. The Spirit is speaking. This command is timeless. It is unbound by culture or boundary. The Lord Jesus calls on everyone and every believer in particular to pay attention and to hear and to heed what the Spirit is saying. Not just what he said, but what he's saying. These words are important and they are relevant to the church of every age. This is so important. We're going to spend the next few weeks trying to listen to what Jesus thinks is important and what he wants his church to prioritize. We, might, we may find that our North American church is in need of a bit of a tune-up. But we're, gonna, we're just going to fix the mirror right on ourselves, right? Because the best way to read the Bible is to read it and say, you know, they should really read that. That's the best way to respond to Scripture is by pointing at somebody else. <laughs> so for the next seven weeks, we're going to do our best to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Your Bibles will be our outline. Please open them to chapter 1 because before we study what 
what was said. We need to come to terms with the one who has something to say. To be candid, my my intent was to begin with the first of the seven churches today, but I, perhaps to my own fault, I really got lost in the fact that the, the, the book spends enough time, significant energy in making sure that we understand. Before we read what is said, the book makes us understand who's talking. And so for us to really respond well to what is said this morning, we're just going to, that really is. The, the, the whole lesson this morning, the whole imperative, the whole direction this morning is just for you and I to come face to face with the one who's talking. Are you ready? Because the Lord has something to say. Chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his, to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. In this paragraph, we have author, we have agent, we have audience, and we have agenda. What wonderful, what crisp what hermeneutic uh, paragraph we have there. This is the revelation. Would you all say it with me? The revelation. That word means unveiling. It means disclosure. And, and if you look at the first uh, uh, five words again, what is this the revelation of? The revelation of? Say it again. The revelation of? Ooh, say it again. The revelation of? This book is about Jesus Christ. It is about him, it is from him, and it is about him. Jesus is the subject of this book. Jesus is the focus of this book. Not horses, trumpets, seals, dragons, harlots, or hills. They're all in there. It's all in the book. They have meaning but their meaning revolves around the central figure. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you skip that, if you miss that and look for something else, then you're just playing fantasy football with Scripture. It is for his bondservants, those who have willingly submitted to and trusted in Jesus Christ. It is to show them the things which will soon take place. Now, if you've been read the Bible a couple of times, that word soon can throw you for a loop. Because when the Lord says soon, he means to communicate a sense of urgency and his perspective. He doesn't mean your microwave. If you when he when he says soon, he means it on his he doesn't he he means this is urgent. This is important. and, And there's action in heaven happening. So we are to read this understanding that it is communicated with a sense of urgency from heaven. Therefore, the reader should respond to this book with care, with readiness, and with worship. John essentially then gives his oath. He said this is, this is what he does. He does it in, the, in his gospel. He does it in his epistles. He, he says, this is my experience. This is my witness. This is my testimony. I saw this. Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and 
heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. Once again, everybody say urgent. Okay? And there's a blessing on this. Blessed is the person who reads this. They say those who read it and those who hear it. That's because, as many of you know, in, in, uh, in this, in chronologically in this time, not, not everybody would have been able to read and write. Only a few people would have been able to read it. And so if, to, to publish a work was really to hand it to somebody who could read, and they would read it out loud to people. And that, that's the, that was publishing it. Okay? So this, these, this, this, this book, which would have been written on a scroll, would have been passed around, and those who were able to read it would have read it. And then the, but John says there is a specific blessing. How many are happy about that? Listen, there's that we we I mean let's just I'm not afraid to just put some faith on that. How many want to put some faith on that? So listen, let's just listen. Blessed is the person who those who read, hear and heed it. How many want to do that? Well, in other words, we could spend the next 7 weeks very blessed. Anybody up for it? All right. Well, don't miss it then cuz I don't want you to miss out. There is a special promise of blessedness and that that literally means favorable circumstance. In the New Testament, this is one of the only texts that, that carries its own promise. It just kind of see law. I mean, Paul didn't write that in his letters to the church at Corinth. Blessed if you read this out loud. You're blessed. I mean, he hoped that they would. He thought that the, we believe that his words are life-giving and instructive. But John says, this is different. And that if you'll, if you'll pay attention... You'll read this and you'll hear this and you'll heed. You'll respond. You'll internalize. You will respond to this. There is God that says you will be blessed. He will send blessing upon you. Well, those of you that got faith for it, you can have it. Let's do that. John, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth by the way what you have here is this in written in uh, in mystery written with metaphor is john's john's perception of a tri- of the triune god he said the, the one who he, the, the, first of all he says uh, 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 i'll get to the who it's tone but when he says um, who, the one from him who is and who was and who is to come, that's actually a paraphrase of the divine name from Exodus 3.15 or 3.5. I don't remember which one. doesn't matter. Okay? But, that is, but Yahweh means to be. It means to am. I am. So this is a paraphrase of Yahweh. And then he says, from the seven spirits who are before us throne. That's not seven dancing you know, fairies, seven, everybody say seven. seven. This is exceedingly important. In the book of Revelation, the word seven is used so many times, and it simply means fullness or perfection. So the seven spirits of God, John is simply telling us that, that he's talk, he, he is beholding the fullness of the spirit, the perfect, full, manifest activity of the, of the spirit. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, uh, Isaiah describes seven, this, this, the sevenfoldness of the Spirit of God. That he's the Spirit of the Lord, he's the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And those, that's just one example of the fullness. And then he says, uh, and from Jesus Christ. And it's, but it's written to, grace to you, to uh, the seven churches in Asia. 
Now, there were more than seven churches in Asia, but these are uh, churches in these cities who will become representatives and examples for the rest of them. John says, grace to you and peace from him who was and is to come, from the seven spirits, and then listen carefully. Because from here on, we're going to be shown that we will be shown the author and the subject of this revelation. Are you ready? Here it is. Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ. Come on, say his name with me out loud. Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Jesus Christ, who John says, the faithful witness. He is the faithful witness. His existence testifies to his victory and to the truth. He said he is the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. Listen, remember, this is supposed to encourage you, meaning that that John's letter, John's statement to them is that Christ is the firstborn of the dead. He rose from the dead as the first with many to follow. That means since Jesus Christ rose from the dead, so will you. Since he overcame death, so have you. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 9, because I live, you also shall live. This is a letter of victory. Death is not final. Rather, because Jesus lives, life is final. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Ruler of the kings of the earth. Why would that be significant to John's audience? Because that means that Jesus is ruler of the kings of the earth, even over the tyrannical, murderous, and oppressive, worshipped by many Caesars of Rome. Jesus is king. He is the king of those who read this letter and who will not swear worship to Caesar. And in any age, our allegiance is to this king, for he is king over all. Picking up the last part of verse 5. To him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a super important paragraph because John pauses to praise this king. To him who loves us. Jesus Christ loves us. To him who loves us. Come on, say it. To him who loves us. And has, has already released us. Released us from our sins. Sins, your sin have no more power over you. I'm looking for anybody who's happy about this. Your sin has no more power over you. Your sin has no more penalty over you. Your sin has no right to poison you. You have been released from your sins by his blood. Someone say, someone say, by his blood. I'm telling you this. Jesus Christ is the subject of this book. His atonement is front and center for the entire time. If you change the subject from the atonement, you have changed the subject. Because heaven hasn't stopped. It's about Jesus. But listen to what he says. This is so good. You gotta, who, who, 
Him who loves us, who released us from our sins by his blood, and he, has made, he, same person, has made us to be a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. He has given you and I royal and righteous identity and destiny. He has not only released you from your sins, he's changed your identity and given you a whole brand new eternal future. To him. Everybody say, to him. He hasn't changed his... To who? To him who loves us, released us, destined us, identified us. To him, the same him who began the sentence, to this Jesus be the glory and the dominion and forever and ever. Amen. Let no one doubt Jesus Christ is Lord. Let no one doubt that the Son of God is God, very God. Verse 7. To him who loves us, who has released us from our sins by his blood, who has made us kingdoms and priests, to him be glory and dominion. Dominion forever and ever. You ready? You ready? Behold, he is coming. The message of revelation. Behold, he is coming. Oh, Lord, help us to feel that this morning. Behold, he is coming. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. He is coming. This is the message of revelation. This is the message of the gospel. This is our blessed hope. This is everything. He's coming. But he's not coming in a manger. He won't be in a stable. He's not coming in secret because every eye will see him. Jesus said of himself, he said, as lightning flashes in the east is seen in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then John says, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Now, this is actual, this is but, but more metaphor, meaning all who reject him have pierced him. Intentional rejection or persecution of him, or even of his church, he takes personally. He's, what? Well, remember what he said to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Saul is imprisoning, persecuting the church, right? The, the first and chief persecutor. And what does the Lord Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So understand that who this letter is written to are those who are being persecuted, those who are being pierced, those who are being killed, those who are being martyred. But, G, but you do that to his body, you do that to him. And then it says, every tribe will mourn. <laughs> I would love to be able to say, as some commentators try to suggest a possibility, that what that means is everybody's just going to repent and see him, and there are going to be tears of mourning and repentance and all of that. Amen. I want that to be true as much as anybody. Uh, the text doesn't sound like that. I want that to be true, but it is more likely more ominous that when Christ returns, there will be a reaction of people from every walk of life who have rejected him. 
and they won't be happy. Now remember, this is written to people who are under persecution. It's written to encourage them. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who, I and who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John pauses to relay what he hears from this one who is coming, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last letter of the alphabet. He is the first, he is the last, and he is everything in between. He, he is the one who is, the one who was, and he is to come, and he is the Almighty. Jesus is the beginning of history. All things were made through him and are sustained by the power of his word. Jesus is the goal of history. All history is moving toward glorifying him, and Jesus is the Almighty. He is the sovereign over all, the all-ruling one. The majority of the times that this word almighty is used in the New Testament, the majority of it, so depending on how you interpret the Greek, it's either 9 out of 12 or 9 out of 10 or whatever, but uh, it's, 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 it's in the book of Revelation, and that is not on accident because the book of Revelation is, in, is, is designed, it is intended to confront the reader with the majesty of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker of the tribulation and the, and the kingdom and the perseverance. I want you to hear those three words again, and I'll talk about them. A fellow partaker in the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance, which are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. First of all, John says that he is there and therefore our brother and fellow. He's one of them. He is one of us. We are in this together. John says he's a fellow partaker in the tribulation, which means the trouble and the persecution that the Christians were facing, tribulation. He is also a partner and a fellow in the kingdom, which is the life and the power and the joy and the wonder of the kingdom of God that is present in power and in righteousness and in peace and in joy in the Holy Spirit. He's present both in, with, he said, both in the tribulation and in the kingdom. And those things are concurrent. We live in the tension of tribulation and kingdom. And do you know how you live in that tension? Perseverance. He's describing kingdom life. We are possessors of, we walk in kingdom power, real power, cool stuff. Real life. And also trouble. In the tension thereof, until he comes. And we do so with perseverance. We endure. This is Christianity. This is how we live. John lived there with us. John. John he lived there with us. You know why he was exiled to Patmos? He was too powerful. He was simply, the, he was too powerful. There was the, 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 work, the, the, the work of Christ through that man was so significant. He was too successful in planting churches, too powerful, too, too many miracles, too much power, too much kingdom. Do you know what Rome did? Persecute, tribulate. Is that a word? Tribulation. They tribulated him. <laughs> they troubled him. When Rome wanted to deal with people that, that weren't necessarily violent criminals, what they did was, was they exiled them. 
Because if, if you kill them, you make them a martyr, right? And then their people rise up and get all fired up. So they, if you kill John, you make him a martyr. And they, they tried that before with the other feller. Remember the guy that they couldn't get rid of? They, killed, they put him in a tomb and then they couldn't find him. Okay, so martyr didn't work. <laughs> so they said, let's just make him irrelevant. Let's just put him out of sight, out of mind. If you banish him, you remove him. You make him harmless. You make him ineffective. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> let's stick him on a, on a penal colony. Oh, but then he's just going to have an encounter with a risen Christ and change the world forever. Listen, there isn't anything that this world can do to you to keep Christ from using you. Right? Verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in the book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to, Ephesus, to Smyrna, to, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, this is the circumstances of John's encounter. First of all, John was in the Spirit. Would you all say in the Spirit? That literally means he was in a state of intense spiritual awareness, worship, and communion. But friends, we should not, I think, consider that to be unusual. I think this describes John's somewhat normal experience. And as such, I think it reminds us and invites us to believe that our communion with the Lord can and should be real, alive, personal, spiritual, and relational. And the, what, is, what did he mean by the Lord's Day? He meant Sunday morning. Right away, friends, listen, I know that for the Old Testament, they observed the Sabbath was Saturday. But when Jesus rose from the dead, the church said, you know what, that's a good day. You know why we worship on Sunday morning? Because it, it is, it, every time we gather on Sunday morning, we are saying to the planet, up from the grave he rose. That's why. That's why. Why do we gather on a Sunday morning? Someone asked me this week, they said their friends in college were asking them, why is it, why, what's the big deal about Sunday? Why don't you just meet on Wednesday or Thursday or whatever? And we do, actually, meet a lot. But why, why Sunday morning? And I said, because every time we do, we testify he rose from the dead. This is the Lord's day. John was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. You know what I, how many just vote for that? Let's all just every Lord's Day say, all right, I'm in, I'm going to be in the spirit because chances are I'm going to hear some stuff and see some stuff. I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet. This would, this would, where it was to him a signal, a, a herald of something regal and extremely significant was about to happen. The voice saying, write what you see to the seven churches. Now, these were seven major churches in what is now Western Turkey. And they were along trade routes or postal routes. They were a part of John's parish. These are would have churches that would have, been, that would have looked to him as their bishop. They are, they are listed in this text clockwise around the region. If I can do it this way for you, it's Ephesus and then Laodicea. Okay? It's not a perfect circle, but it goes around like that. So it's a, they are listed clockwise in that western part of the region. Now, just from that, it says, write what you see, write this whole thing to each of the churches. 
So just from that textual clue, friends, we understand again that what was said in this letter to these churches, it was specific to these specific churches, but the principles that, that, that were read were expected to be understood and applied generally because everybody was going to read what was written to everybody else. And that was intended. You feel me? Verse 12, so then I, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his tongue came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. John turned and saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of them one like a son of man. And John's vision of him, John's depiction, his description of what he saw blends every regal, righteous, and glorious image from the scriptures. He is the culmination. God has spoken to us through his son. He is the fused descriptions of the ancient of days in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Mixed and fused with the description that John would have seen on the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the transfigured Christ in Matthew 17, 2. And what we see is, as a high priest, his robe reached to his feet. As king, he wore the golden sash like a girdle. His, his white-like snow hair speaks of his dignity and his wisdom. His burning eyes speak of his omniscience, his, his, his piercing and perfect insight. Nothing may hide from his gaze. Not even you, not even your church, not even your circumstances, not anyone that's trying to harm you, not your past, not your future. He sees you. And his feet were like polished, heated bronze. Yep, that's perfect authority and pure judgment. His voice roared like the sound of many waters, like the majestic and awe-inspiring sound of a great waterfall or the crashing of the tides against the rocks below John's ear. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Mythology said that the stars controlled fate or that the stars were gods in the sky, but this one holds the stars in his hand. From his mouth, a two-edged sword. This was his clean, sharp, and piercing word. And his face shone like the sun in all its brilliance. His very countenance was too much to fully look upon. It was radiant, it was supreme and overwhelming, and it changed everything that it saw. Verse 17 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the, and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Friends, this vision of Jesus, it was all too much for John. We talked about this last week. I was talking with, uh, the, with the younger, with Jeremy, and he said, yeah, you know that thing? He said, here's, here's John. He's Jesus' buddy, his loyal disciple, his best buddy. But when he sees him as he really is in his glory, too much, blap. 
All this is too much for John, Jesus' closest friend. John, who, who be, John has already seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. John has already seen and beheld the risen Christ on Easter Sunday. John watched Jesus ascend into heaven. But seeing this one, seeing this Jesus, behold, the one who is coming, John lost the capacity to remain conscious, let alone remain upright. He fell like a dead man. But, Jesus placed that hand. He placed his right hand on John. You know that. John knew that hand. That was was the nail-pierced hand. That was the hand that had broken loaves and fishes. That was the hand that had turned water into wine. That That was the hand that had imparted life to the dead. That was the hand that had cleansed leprosy. And now that hand rested on John. And then he heard that voice. That voice that said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That voice was for John, of course, first of all, don't be afraid. He'd heard Jesus say this before. He'd heard Jesus say it to weeping parents who had lost a child. Don't be afraid. He heard Jesus say it to a brokenhearted man who thought there was no more hope for his son. But he heard Jesus say, don't be afraid. He heard Jesus say it to grieving sisters whose brother had been in a tomb for four days. He said, don't be afraid. To frightened disciples in the midst of a storm, he heard Jesus say, don't be afraid. To anxious disciples fearing their future, he had heard Jesus say, don't be afraid. He knew knew well the voice that said to him, Don't be afraid. And in this moment, facing this cosmic vision, facing persecution and exile and hopelessness, what does this one now say again to John? Don't be afraid. What does it mean for those who will read this? For him, for them, and for you and I today, the message of Revelation is clear. Do not be afraid. Why? Why? Why should we not fear? Because of verse 4. Because Jesus says, I am am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. Let all who read these words banish fear from their hearts and their minds forever. For the living one, the one who was first and last Jesus, the one who died, is still alive. (laughs) He says to John, don't be afraid, it's me. And, he says, I got the keys. Jesus has total authority, dominion, and power over life and death and hell itself. There is nothing to fear because this is Jesus, and he is Lord of everything forever. Somebody should say amen. Somebody should give thanks to Jesus. There's more than that, but this we got to catch this. This is the prevailing message and the supremely important point of this book. Jesus is Lord. He reigns. He is the victor, and in Him is the victory forever. Therefore, we must not fear this life. Therefore, we must not yield to the force of this dark world. Therefore, we must not compromise with the unholy. Therefore, we must be diligent about the works of his kingdom. For his judgment and his reward and his return are certain. Hallelujah. 
Verse 19, John says, therefore, because of this, therefore, write these which things which you have seen, the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Write this down. I've got something to say. Because of who I am, because of what you've seen in light. See, this is the thing. You've got to come to grips with the one who's talking. And then understand, because of him. Now, listen, he has something to say. Verse 20, before John finishes. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven stars in Jesus' hand, he said, are the angels of the seven churches. Angels? There are, there are some uh, translators who suggest, who think, because the word, the word angel and messenger are the same, and that's true, and they're used interchangeably, or they're used in context when they mean what they mean. But in Revelation, <laughs> it's, never, it's, it's never meant to be a messenger. There's never a human messenger. It makes it easy for us to understand a little bit better if he meant human messengers, but it, that's just nowhere in the context. He seems to mean that somehow there were angels assigned to representing, partnering with, overseeing these churches. And that they were to carry as stewards these letters. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, speaking of angels, says, are they, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation? There are, these angels are guardians. They are custodians. This, this, listen, friends, what this is important is it reinforces the idea that the church is not ours. The church isn't our idea. We are stewards. And we are not alone. We are not alone. But here, more clearly than elsewhere, we understand that these seven churches... That though they are actual churches, that the idea that Jesus said these are angels of the seven, he is speaking to these churches, and because he addresses them as seven, that his message to these seven represent his message. They carry timeless message to every church of any age. What he says to these churches, he says to churches of every place. He says to us. You ready? That's next week. We start. But first, the lampstands. These lampstands, like the menorah, like the menorah was the symbol of the temple and of Israelite identity and worship, it is now, according to Revelation, it is the symbol of the presence of the Spirit giving light and life. These lampstands now represent, they are the churches. We are this light, but this light is not ours. It flows from the Spirit of God. As a church, our, our purpose, our existence is to emit, to radiate the light and life of the Spirit of God. But we are not the source of that life. We are the stewards of it. 
We exist as totally dependent upon the Spirit. We exist to testify to the presence of God. That's the purpose of a lamp, to give light. Our purpose in this church is to testify to the presence of God. Come on, church. You need to hear that again. Our purpose, we are a lampstand. We, our purpose is to testify to the presence of the one that is fueling us, to the oil that gives us light. We are to burn that with light and heat. And we read, we are, say every day, we're the lampstands. Say it again, we're the lampstands. But we read that this one, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood, this one who has made us a kingdom of priests, this one to whom belongs glory and dominion forever, this one who is coming with the clouds, the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty, the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days, the living one who was dead but is alive forevermore, the one who holds the keys of death and hell, the one who holds the stars in his hand, this one walks among the lampstands. He walks among the lampstands. He is present with us. He is not distant. He is present with the lampstands. This tells us what he thinks about church. Why is church important? Big deal. Pippity bop. Who cares? What's the big deal about church? That's where the one is among. You need to measure church from his point of view. This one walks among the lampstands. Friends, he is among us. Come on, everybody say it out loud with me. He is among us. Would you bow your your heads? Just say it out loud with me again. He is among us. One more more time, because what I'm going to ask you to do is just meditate on that quietly for a moment. Let's say it with me. Ready, Ready, ready? Here we go. He is among us. And he has something to say. Let him who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's stand together and just lean into the consciousness of his presence. He is among us. If all we heard from the book of Revelation is John's description and Christ's own confession of who he is. It would be enough to encourage us, to comfort us, to give us hope, to give us resolve, to give us confidence and faith. Because this is Jesus. In this one text alone, we are reminded of his his love for us, the power of his sacrifice, the complete victory of his work, of his glory, of his power, of his promise to come. 
of his victory that is ours. And that he is present. Christianity is not, did not downshift into deism. Somehow we believe in a God who came and lived and then left and has remains distant and disconnected and disinterested. On the contrary, He is among us. He is among us. He is among us. Lord, we give you thanks.